Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. gingerly and, and um, carefully, um, we're actually going to be looking at essentially the same text that Jonathan preached on last Sunday, but I want to do it in a completely different way, and I intentionally don't even really break the text or the, the specific uh, element of the story that he's focusing on, um, and I felt strongly that we need to do to do this primarily because feel like if we didn't do this, it's not going to set the stage well for where we're going and explaining what we're doing and taking as we go. So this morning, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three major points from John chapter 13, and then we're going to close with a, a Q&A as we typically do at the end of the chapter. Um, and um, so as I always will complain around HBS, by the way, Bill, balance this side of the room out because everybody else somehow migrated to the other side. So if the room feels like it's tipping, uh, just, yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah, it's exactly right. Uh, that's, that's what's happening. Hopefully it's not, uh, that, that would seem somewhat like the end of the world if all of a sudden the room just sort of. So um, the, um, we're going to look at three major themes, excuse me, from this chapter. And then what we'll do is uh, try and wrap this up in a way so that it positions us for the next kind of movement through the Gospel of John and uh, the closing few months. The Gospel of John, as we have said, is the intention of John the Gospelist, who writes it some 50 years after um, the church in Ephesus has been established. He writes it some 50 years or 60 years after the other Gospels. And my God, am I grateful. I mean, isn't it interesting to think like, and this is not the message, but isn't it kind of funny can you imagine, because once again, we think that John just was in deep prayer one day, and all of a sudden, the Holy Ghost filled him with the Word, and just, you know, pumped this thing out in Microsoft Word, this cell phone, um, and all of this, you know, it's, it's, there it is, and it starts flowing. Can you imagine the wrestling that John would have had to write another gospel when at that point there was already three, even though it wasn't in any way, collected scripture canon, but they hadn't 
three gospels written that were in circulation. And if John's a trinity man, three's a pretty good number. You know what I mean? Like, if John being a trinity guy, which we know he is, you know, he'd be like, that's perfect. You know, there's three gospels, Father, Son, and Spirit. Those are pretty good numbers. But there was something that he felt he needed to do. And what I think he needed to do, he's the oldest living disciple, and he's had more time to consider what the, the ramifications, and I, I'm going to use this word, the universal ramifications of his life. So John chapter 13 verses, uh, well actually it says 1 through 3, we're just going to look at verse 1, um, starts and John 13 says, it was before the festival of Passover, Jesus knew that his time had come. Remember, Sunday, the previous Sunday, we spent a lot of time with Jesus, the Jews had come and wanted to speak to Jesus, and he knew the hour had come, remember we talked about how that was so important, that he had been saying, hour has come, hour has come, and that was the moment, now it's living into that reality, that the hour has come, so that the hour has come for him to leave the world and go to the Father, he had always loved the people in the world, now he loved them right through Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, um, I would, uh, I think you can work with verse 1 enough to be good. But really, if you want the whole picture, the way that the scholars would call us is chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, is the setup. That's John's um, uh, setup for everything else he's going to do for the next chapter, the Gospel of John. The love and down-to-earthness comes through in this incredible passage. It's both the beginning and the end. It's the beginning of the long, slow build-up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and the end, the climax, the goal of everything Jesus has done so far. Remember, if John's gospel is to widen out the Genesis story, then it's to tell us, to tell the Hebrew, the Jewish people, that God was the God of all. The idea that when the Greeks came to Jesus through Jesus, that that was the trigger is now you can see why this is the culmination, the climax of so much. The first three verses form a detailed instruction both uh, to the foot washing scene and to the whole rest of the book. Watch how John, like a brilliant artist, fills in the background with three quick strokes. So he starts, he loves them to the end. Now having realized that the Father had given him all things into his hands. And that when he looked at them, he said, you, Father, are God. Those three words are And so if we understand 
all of these, you'll not only see the fit, what the fit doctrine was, but also what Jesus' resurrection was. I would suggest to you that metaphorically and in or thematically, that the foot washing scene is a representation of Jesus' resurrection. Him giving himself unto death. John, maybe more than any writer, shows the connection to uh, of Jesus to the Passover as the lamb. So what's interesting to see, and we'll, we'll work through this, um, so I'm going to talk a bit about the Passover because everything else that happens hinges on this moment. So if you notice the opening, yeah, I'm backwards so you don't come flying to you. It was before what? Festival of Passover. So do you remember John is all about what, what the details we have and the details we don't have matter. And remember how he spent all this time, all of the great stories uh, from when he comes in and covers over the tables um, to when he, uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery to um, uh, when he, oh, the, uh, the blind man that he healed. All that centered around the Feast of Tabernacles that he would do, if you remember that. Um, and all of these feasts that John highlights are going back to the Exodus story because John's great message is a rising against for the liberation of all people. So he's modeling the Exodus or the liberation from, from slavery, and he's doing so in saying this isn't just an Israel-Egypt story. This is a human story. And Jesus, like Moses, Jesus and Joshua, are leading us out of Exodus, uh, out of Egypt, into the Exodus, into this great uh, land flowing with milk and honey, which doesn't mean it's all perfect and no problem. What it means is, and we'll talk about this in a little bit later, that the idea of Egypt is that we are slaves to our doing and unable to live into our being. That's what we're liberated from. And so for 400 years, this is another metaphor, but for 400 years, they had not been able to practice Sabbath. They kept seven days of continuous work. So do you know the first mandate and commandment that God gives to Israel after they're liberated from Egypt? The same day and hour. Sabbath is the first Sabbath rest. Why? Because if all you do is seven days work, I'm using this metaphorically, but if all we do is work, we begin to deprive ourselves back of our being, our production and our being. And if you don't believe me, we are living in the apex of a doing society. When you ask people, when the most common answer to how are you doing is busy, that is not a how are you doing answer. That is a what are you doing answer. That is so conflated that we, I believe, we actually now have an addiction to the adornment that comes from the illusion of demand. The illusion of demand 
lifted up. Remember, Jesus keeps saying to them, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And he speaks of himself and the cross as being the brazen serpent. Remember what happened with sorcerers that were in the desert. They took the, the, the serpent and, and made a, 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 a brass rod, brazen rod, and stuck it in the ground. And if you looked at it, you were healed. Jesus says, that's me. So that's the first thing. And what I would venture to say is that what he's trying to teach us, one thing he's trying to teach us in that metaphor is that in the midst of our pain, if we actually look through the thing that hurt us, we'll find healing. He takes an icon, they take an icon of the scorpion to make the serpent, or to make the, of the serpent, of it's been biting them. Killing them. Killing them. This would be like having an outbreak of the mumps and making a mump picture and telling everybody to look at it. Right? I mean, I'm sure that the last thing they wanted to see at this moment was the thing that was in healing. What can I complain about? But don't we have such a tendency to want to run and avoid the pain? Get me out of it. Jesus says the way to healing is through. Next, next metaphor we find is the Passover. We're going to talk about what that means. The third metaphor we find this morning is the scapegoat. Now, here's where we get uh, some confusion. So we're going to speak to this just a little bit. So the thing that you find as John is setting up, so this is the big setup. So what's happening here? is that Jesus is identified as John as the Passover lamb, the lifted up one, and the scapegoat. We've discussed the brazen serpent as Jesus lets him come down. He leaves. And this clearly shows the intent of God as being the one that stands in solidarity with our pain. If I can say anything, anything, anything that I'd like you to hear this morning, it is that the thing that separates our God from every other God is that our God is not the one who prevents the suffering and the pain while standing off in the distance somewhere. And then when it doesn't work out, we think we've probably offended him somehow. But it's the Jesus that suffers in solidarity with you. In every way he has been tempted, likewise, he was also tempted. He literally enters our suffering and pain and is the only God in Christ, in Jesus, that showcases what solidarity with the oppressed, what solidarity with the poor, what solidarity with the hurting and the marginalized and the lepers, what that looks like. Not from the outside saying, well, surely you've done something to the sheep. but actually entering in with us. So that is just there for us. All three of these metaphors show us the victim state has been applied, or excuse me, has been the plight of most people who have ever lived. I, I have to say this just to put this in context because we don't get it because we live in the period, most period, privileged period, country period ever period but we do realize that the large majority of the facts 
something like waiting to order perfection while human beings do it for real. Jesus enters into suffering. And in many ways, what we see is in all three cases, Jesus identifying with humanity at its most critical and vulnerable. It is God in solidarity with the pain of the world we see, much more than the God of the omnipotent. We love the idea of the mighty God. In fact, we don't even, we go, we go further. Anybody know what would be further than mighty God? Almighty God. It's not just enough that we have like mighty God. I want almighty God. How about all suffering God? Is that a God that we would want to serve? But that's the definition of what our God is. But suddenly suffers with us everywhere. It's a God who's already suffered everything that we might suffer. And Jesus comes and shows this solidarity. And it seems that we desire the God of omnipotence who with the flick of a hand overcomes all pain. But Jesus walks the victim journey in an extraordinary way. He neither plays the victim card for his own aggrandizement, nor does he victimize anybody else, even his murderers. He does the victim suffering, pain, rejected thing so well for us that he doesn't choose to become identified. He self-identified as the victim of somebody else's oppression, nor does he seek to then victimize somebody else because of his victimhood. Hurt people, hurt people. Jesus comes. Thomas Merton said that the pain that does not that uh, does not transform us, we will transform. The pain that does not transform us, we will transform. Jesus takes this and forgives them all. But it is necessary that we understand the difference between the scapegoat and the Passover lamb. So we're going to focus now, if you can give me just a moment, and believe me, I deleted two pages of stuff on this. So I got down to like two paragraphs. Um, I, I called Doug and he said it was okay, but he would fill in any gaps. So, Passover commemoration, the Passover feast was instituted, if we remember right, as they were leaving Egypt. The Passover had to do with the blood that was put um, over top of uh, the lintel of the doorpost. If you remember, the Passover feast was something that spoke of their liberation. And what you find is that the Passover feast is not, hear me, not about sin absolution. It is not about absolving sin. 
Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb, is not the one who takes away sin. was not about sin. Remember the Passover story. Remember what happened. They had the feast. They killed the lamb. They put the blood over the lintels and doorposts. And the the uh, the child of the Egyptian died while the child of the Israelites did not die. Does that have anything to do with sin? Forgiveness of sins? No. No. The Day of Atonement is what caused forgiveness of sins. The two different feasts. So what would happen is the day of Passover, the feast of Passover, was a feast that commemorated and celebrated liberation. The day, the feast of Passover was the feast of liberation. The spirit lamb was sacrificed to commemorate the movement from a way of life defined by bondage and production uh, into a way of freedom. Jesus modeled this liberation so well, including embracing the role as the one cure that gave his life, showing us the path of liberation. So Jesus as the lamb, I'd just like to make this suggestion to you. The reason Jesus is defined by John as the Passover lamb is because Jesus is the archetype of our liberation. Jesus as the Passover lamb is not about your sin being washed away. Jesus as the uh, Passover lamb is the archetype of what it means to be led out of bondage and into freedom. It's just that simple. That's what the Passover means. So interestingly enough, I had hoped maybe that the deeper message here is something different. Why is there a death in the Passover? So I personally believe that part of this is because the, the Passover is the death of our ego. Because one of the things that I have found is that letting go of our ego agenda and the things that have brought us this far is often the hinge point for us to be able to move into the next thing that we're supposed to move forward into. What I'm saying is that the things that have brought you this far, if you allow those things to define you and to be the mantra, the doctrine of who you are and all got to do, you turn them into purity code and rules and say, this is how God does things. The Passover feast is about the death of our ego, and our ego is oftentimes de determined by our absolute worship of meritocracy. Thinking that we're good folks. You see, often we have to have our religious systems, the purity codes that have served us well to keep safe and, and those things build boxes around us, and those purity codes tell us not only just that I'm in, I'll just let anybody fill in, it, my purity code just doesn't tell me I'm in, it tells me what else? Somebody else is out. So purity code is this idea that says, and it's not bad. 
not that everything like here that they just listened to to um, Michael W. Smith and not the ACDC was not bad. But it's the fact that they were predicting what they knew was going to happen. So at some point, the Passover lamb feast is about liberation. And if we have been liberated from it, it's the thing that defines our The most difficult thing to be liberated from is the thing that in your mind, or maybe better said, in your ego, defines your ends, your favors, your questions. So Jesus at the Passover lamb describes the rule, the rule of his and says follow me John's use of this long metaphor is showing us that the pattern of transformation is always death transforming death and life remember this death and life are two sides of the same coin in the same way that crucifixion and resurrection are two sides of the same coin and you cannot have resurrection without descent and essence was coined by St. Augustine, who you know for many other reasons, as the paschal mystery. In fact, I said paschal last week. The paschal mystery is this idea that you cannot have resurrection without death. The scapegoat, however, is a different metaphor altogether. So the scapegoat is another Jewish metaphor used that John used for Jesus. And you find this several times through John's writings as well as through Pauline literature. And it was a ritual that was used. The scapegoat ritual was used on the Day of Atonement. Now, I always thought that the Passover lamb was what atoned for sin. Do you want to know what the ritual for atonement was? So the ritual for atonement was on the Day of Atonement, one time a year, the priest would take a goat or a lamb and he would bring it in and he would take all of the sins of the nation. And he would lay his hands on the goat, and they would literally, uh, well, actually more properly, metaphorically, uh, cast their sins onto the goat. And what they would do next is they would whip the goat and drive it out into the wilderness. So they were scapegoating their sin upon the goat so that they would be atoned. Does anybody notice what's missing here? Who else killed the goat? So doesn't that kind of upend everything we've been told that there has to be blood sacrifice in order for sin to be atoned for? They were atoning for sin. And no blood was shed. That kind of messes up things, doesn't it? So what you find is that this practice... Um, was where they, it was a vividly symbolic act. I'm actually reading now from from one of the the Jewish messages. It was a vividly symbolic act that had to unite and free the people in the short term 
say that their conscience could be absolved as a nation. We're talking now about systemic corruption. Just for the sake of conversation and so that maybe you're neighborly with that, anybody have a suggestion of maybe what a systemic sin might look like? Racism is something that we've all participated in, right? There's abortion stuff that we've all participated in, right? But are we complicit with it being part of the fabric of human government? Right? And so that's why over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you would see the prophets who would repent on behalf of Israel. Did they literally bear the burden of the sin of everybody in Israel? Well, no, of course not. But we've already talked about the individual freedom is in the Passover, the death of our ego. This is about systemic corruption. And the scapegoat is really bizarre. But what they would do is it would free people in the short term. Instead of owning their sins as a nation, this ritual allows them, think about how we do this today. <laughs> you know me well enough to know I'm going there, right? And so... They, this ritual allows the people to export their sins elsewhere, in this case, onto an innocent animal. Do we not still do this today, that in order for us to feel better about ourselves, we have to find someone else that is worse? Has anybody ever heard the argument made for slavery in our country? Well, the Africans had slaves before we did. I've heard that argument repeatedly, that, well, we Africans did what they were already doing to each other. Guess what that's called, folks? Scapegoating. Has anybody uh, noticed that in our country there's a lot of vitriol around these people called immigrants? Refugees. And surprisingly, we're seeing an increasing, increasing amount we're fighting about Islam. So when I say Muslim or Islam, it, I, I don't think I'm correcting to say that anyone in this country automatically associates with Islam. Has terrorism been committed more so by anybody in Muslim or Islam than other religions? Not even close. Not even close. But it allows us to not the finger back at us, specifically people that look like me, white male Christians who've done most of the heavy lifting, if I can scapegoat somebody else, it frees my conscience. And so the weird thing, and there's all kinds of stuff around this, psychologically, they've actually proven that in a group, there's nothing more dangerous than a group scapegoating, because when a group does this, surprisingly, they actually find it better. If we can't increase our loyalty, and I say that as an agreed-upon enemy or an agreed-upon evil and refusing to the point of death, we feel better. There's this really interesting quote by a slave technologist. Now, this quote is like a 1,000 years old. 
can as easy as it is to externally do it and religious not. And notice the language, completely. And what's the second word? Jesus cast the veto from. And John identifies Jesus as the Passover lamb to show them the need to be compassionately, continuously liberated, to move past their narrowness of conscience. And here we're told, give them a place of real freedom. And this place is the place where we free others because why? We're free. John then also identifies Jesus as the scapegoat. He takes on systemic sin to reveal the universal lie of scapegoating and heal our need to ever our neighbor, who is precisely who we're supposed to love. So, that's the great role reversal. Jesus actually becomes the one, the innocent one, the perfect one, that they scapegoat. The Romans wanted him to die because he was a threat to, you know, whatever, empire. Um, And the Jewish people wanted him to die. The religious leaders in Judaism wanted him to die because he was a threat to their legalistic religion. Had Jesus actually done anything worthy of death? In fact, if you remember the story, when they take down Jesus, they say, we don't know who you are, right? But they cried out what? with this, uh, John chapter 13, verses 12 through 15. So when Jesus would wash their feet, notice the parallel McDonald's ad. I told you I was going there. You didn't believe me. <laughs> so when Jesus was finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and sat down again. He said, did you know what I've done in you? You call me teacher and master, and you're right. That's what I am. Well, then if I, as your master and teacher, wash your feet this morning, you should wash given you a pattern so that you can do things the same way I do. How many times have you heard grown parents like laying their hands on people so that they're healed? These things and greater things will you do. How many times have you heard that in correlation? You can do things the same way I've done it. I've shown you the pattern. 
Not nearly as flexible as that. Like, I want some people to get out in a wheelchair. I don't want to walk on the street. So, is it possible that Jesus washing the disciples' feet was showing us something? I believe it was, because interesting, in that Jewish custom, and this is pretty quick, Jewish custom was that even the Jewish servants were not allowed to wash other Jews' feet. So what would happen is the Jewish people were not, didn't, have, um, didn't have the ability to bathe their whole bodies. What they would do is any time, like if they were walking around in sandals or barefoot even, um, and so they would, when they went into a house, they would wash, you would wash your own feet. You'd wash your hands and you'd wash your feet. If you were in a, if you were somebody that was prestigious or somebody of elevated platform, what they would do is your feet would be washed for you. But it was really interesting because the Jewish purity code, the law, said that a Jew could not wash another Jew's feet. So they would have Gentile slaves wash their feet. Jesus takes this a step further. Not only is he a Jew washing their feet, he's their master. He literally takes the role of the least. Do you realize that the only person in the Jewish society who was beneath the children of the Gentiles was Jesus? They had less rights than children so what he would do, in fact, they actually were, were regarded as less than their animals. So the horse, if owned by a Jew, had more rights than the Gentile slave. Jesus takes that role. And I love that he does this because if you remember, what was it? And you'll remember because you guys are good. Remember what happened when in the last passage, when the hour had come, it was because who came and said they wanted to see Jesus? The Greeks. So could it be that Jesus is enacting this role, this ritual during Passover specifically to show that liberation and exodus from bondage is a design for all? Is it possible that Jesus finishes this point by, by washing their feet at Passover because he knew what the Passover lamb meant? He knew what the scapegoat meant. And he said, I'm not only going to culminate all of this, I'm going to show you that the thing I'm getting ready to do is not just for a specific group, but I'm showing you that the way of freedom is where you are free and you free others. Jesus actually shows them that Israel becomes free in order to free. And so it's God's design that they be given power to serve the world, not oppress it. Jesus, having been given all power under heaven and earth by his Father, took it upon him and washed their feet. All power is defined when we serve 
comes into our QMR, I think that the, the thing that stands out that we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks, the remaining verses of, of John Calvin specifically deals with um, the last week of Christ. We haven't even really gotten to the Last Supper yet. We haven't gotten to what the elders have talked about, what all that means. But I think that there's something in here to really understand and lean into that Jesus is not just John is showing us what what we hear what we think what he's really showing us that includes the people that the Jewish people use these rituals to separate them from one another so I'm just going to read this beautiful beautiful picture I think that is the idea that Jesus begins with so I'm focusing on the Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.